We had a year where we had a less than stellar say on pay outcome. This is Governance Matters, a podcast for corporate secretaries. For us, that was very much a wake-up call. If the board didn't have it, they really got religion there. I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. Every public company has one, a corporate secretary. Not so long ago, the job was one that was primarily seen as board-facing. But in today's fast-evolving corporate governance landscape, where even the very purpose of their organization is in question, the corporate secretary job is changing as well. As say on pay became a thing and you know, our board began paying more attention to voting outcomes and proxy advisory firms and how ISS was sort of grading companies on their corporate governance and things like that, the role for me, and I think this is true for a lot of individuals, that it became much more of a strategic role within the organization. On today's program, we'll meet Hannah Orowitz. Hannah is Managing Director with Georgeson's Corporate Governance Advisory Team. She works at what she calls, quote, the evolving intersection of shareholder engagement and ESG. She's kept a close eye on the forces shaping today's corporate governance landscape and how they've changed the corporate secretary's role. Plus, Hannah's got some seriously sage advice on how corporate secretaries can influence boards and shape that role as well. That's one of our guests today. Later on, Derek Windham. He's Hewlett Packard Enterprises Vice President and Associate General Counsel. We'll find out some of his thoughts on the corporate secretary's evolving role, especially when it comes to risk management. As we've seen this year, a lot of externalities are affecting companies in a very substantial way, and we have to be uh, we have to be attuned to it. First up, though, Hannah Orowitz looks at why the corporate secretary role became a strategic responsibility and how to keep it that way. And one last thing, the XL Hannah is talking about in this conversation with Jeff is XL Group. Now, it's a subsidiary of insurance giant AXA. She's departed as its vice president, associate general counsel, and assistant secretary. As she tells Jeff, her route into the corporate secretary's office was not atypical. I began my career as a capital markets attorney, uh-huh. and um, I was doing a lot of IPOs that happened to be for business development companies, and those uh, companies tended to be pretty leanly staffed internally in terms of their legal resources. So I often sort of served for those clients as an outsourced corporate secretarial and general counsel function. Huh. and realized pretty early on in my career as an associate at a law firm that I really preferred the corporate governance and the ongoing securities work more than the deal work. And at that point, that really, I became an attorney. Uh, I graduated from law school in 2006. So when I started practicing, it was really um, aligned with uh, the time when there were began to be changes to the SEC rules uh, around executive compensation. That's when the CDNA was, uh-huh. was born. Um, and so I became, within my law firm, one of the associates that was really tasked with <laughs> becoming intimately familiar <laughs> with the CDNA. And um, and I, I actually liked doing that disclosure work. I'm not sure what that says about me as a person. <laughs> I enjoyed what was, uh, you know, in hindsight, pretty, pretty, uh, 
dry and meticulous work at that point. But that was how I really transitioned over to Excel is because I did a lot of work with companies in financial services and Excel was looking for someone to move into that securities council role that had a lot of experience within the financial services space. Um, so I began working there and when I, I joined Excel in 2009, uh, you know, in the midst of our last financial crisis and there were a lot of governance changes that started to come out of Dodd-Frank. And as, you know, we thought about those and as say on pay came into being, you know, the role just continued to evolve. And I think one of the good things about a corporate secretarial role both then and now is that because of the the role that you have around sort of the, the board agenda and the development of board materials and that, you get to get your fingers in a lot of different aspects of the company's business. Mm-hmm. So I had the opportunity pretty early on to work with a broad range of people and you know, as as Sam Pay became a thing and you know our board began paying more attention to voting outcomes and proxy advisory firms and how ISS was sort of grading companies on their corporate governance and things like that. The the role for me, and I think this is true for a a lot of individuals, I think would find this, that it became much more of a strategic role within the organization and, you know, working very closely with IR in terms of building out our shareholder engagement beyond the conversations that IR has with sort of your your analyst community and the conversations around sort of fundamental financials expanding into the the governance and later the, you know, the ESG topics. And uh, it became just a, a very different role from when I started. Was the board receptive to, to that sort of transition in, in your role or was that something – you had to kind of convince the corporate culture or, or the people who you needed to advise that they needed advisement. How, how did that work? Yeah, you know, it really, it, it was a process. I wouldn't say it was somewhat of a long-term but fluid process, I guess I would say, because as we started talking about these things and, you know, with the board in terms of investor expectations around board refreshment, for example, or wanting to understand the board's process for evaluation and things like that. As we had conversations in the boardroom about how that was happening, you know, over time, you know, the directors have continued to take that away as food for thought. And that did, you know, then inform our, our decision-making, I think, in terms of uh, our committee structures and board refreshment. And then we happened to have, as I think, I I don't know how typical this experience is for companies or not. I can say statistically somewhere between a third of half and half of companies have had this happen. But we had a year where we had uh, a less than stellar say on pay outcome. Mm -hmm. Ah. And, you know, for us, that was very much a wake up call in terms of investor sentiment and the need to have uh, a robust engagement effort, not strictly from the investor relations side of the house, but really, from a governance standpoint with the stewardship teams. And once that happened, you know, I think uh, if the board didn't have it, they really got religion there in terms of, of recognizing the, the impact that the governance of the corporation could have on 
voting outcomes and mm-hmm. the need to understand really investors' viewpoints and priorities. Hannah, are, are boards now, are they on board with this? Do they, have they all had that wake-up call? Or, or, or when you speak with people, are they really kind of in the dark about in, investor expectations on this? Or are they... Are... Yeah, I mean, I would say companies remain sort of all over the map okay. in that regard. Hmm. And, you know, I find often when we begin, you know, we have some clients that have been doing engagement for a long time and their their board views that as an important part of their, their annual process. Other, other clients, I think there's still, there remains with some, uh, a bit of this concern of, if I open that door, what am I going to hear? And uh, a bit of hesitation and wanting to, to get that feedback. And, and you know, there's still, this is beginning to break down a little bit, but you know, earlier on, you would often hear from companies, well, our investor relations team has never had a question on ESG. It's not a topic that comes up. And what we often say to that is, one, the question, particularly coming from analysts, isn't going to be bucketed for you as an ESG question. So they may be asking things where they are, in fact, very interested in some of those those topics, but they're asking you about sort of strategic initiatives and how you're thinking about certain things, and they're not they're not telling you in particular, we want to understand if you are appropriately managing your climate risk or we, you know, and sometimes they do, but if it's a general question coming from an analyst, uh, from someone who hasn't been thinking about those issues, they may not hear the question as something that has ESG components to it. So in fact, it may be something that their investors are interested in, but it's not something that they're focused on and the investor is observing mm-hmm. that they are in fact not focused on that. But uh, sort of that, if a Pandora's box you know, our viewpoint is always it's better to ha- to begin to have those conversations on a clear day because at a certain point, you know, we've, we're seeing this with clients where things go south and there are issues that are then impacting voting because investors are not happy with how they have been managing climate risk or how the board is... Uh, accountable for, you know, strong governance practices and, you know, beginning to have those conversations when there is a vote at play or after you've had uh, an unsatisfactory vote is a somewhat different tone than if you began those conversations uh, coming from a place of good hygiene, so to speak. Where's the energy for this coming from? Is it coming from the boards top down or, or is it literally shareholders are telling corporate secretaries and other intermediaries this is how they you know what's important to them and how they want it reported and then they tell that to the board mm-hmm. or, or what's the dynamic there exactly yeah i mean i think that depends is somewhat company specific and i guess i'd say probably both depending okay. depending and i think you know from from a board perspective it's not that the idea of of long termism is new but i think you know there was Historically, at least within my career span, you know, there's been a lot of focus on your quarterly earnings results. And so 
you you manage your quarterly earnings results and you budget and you do you know have your um, longer term like five year planning and you know but you get a lot of um, noise in your in your stock if you miss uh, earnings and I think that makes it difficult to to focus on the longer term I think there are certainly companies that have done that notwithstanding and you know think uh, very strategically about research, development, long ter- longer-term business growth. But I think because of how that, that cycle has been, it, that has made it challenging for a lot of companies to justify longer-term investments that aren't going to necessarily be seen right away. And so to some extent, you know, as investors are beginning to say, no, we do, we do want this long-term focus. Hopefully that's giving some companies the, the feedback that they need in order to take some of the focus away from, I guess I would say your, your quarterly earnings results. Right. Okay. That, that is the direction of, of sort of the zeitgeist uh, these days in terms of everything from regulation to just uh, uh, just sort of expectations. Yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, I think in terms of when you talk about sort of investors, I mean, what's interesting is that there's obviously an institutional investor focus on these topics. But I think it will be interesting as uh, you know, people talk a lot about millennials and how millennials have a lot more, place much more importance on the the purpose of their the company they work for or want to invest with their values and you know I, I think there certainly does seem to be truth to that and as those individuals become uh, the broader not broader but the majority more mm-hmm. of your workforce you know that, that's probably going to have some cultural shifts and probably change m- even more how asset managers are thinking about these topics. You know, and like you, I've noticed even within the last few years, a lot of the asset managers on more of the retail side of things are doing things like making Sustainalytics or MSCI scoring available through their brokerage platforms or, you know, creating ESG strategies for retail investors. And, you know, I think that growth is also something that's playing a part here, not just from the institutional side of things. Yeah, and I think I think you put your finger on it uh, in terms of sort of the generational question, um, and and I do see a disconnect. Most board members are perhaps in their fifties and sixties. Uh, uh, this generation, with all the money to invest, is 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 not in in that age group, mm-hmm. um, and yet so so they see different risks than 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 board members have, who perhaps in the past have. Um, again, yeah, again, yeah, I think that's a. Uh, and uh, just to, to what you were saying, I mean, I think even I would consider directors in their 50s, typically I would consider them to be diverse from an age perspective. Okay. I would say, you know, since they're <laughs> where a lot of your directors are. But I mean, that is something that I've talked about with clients and internally among our team before is sort of, is age diversity something that is going to be more of a focus? Hmm. in the future beyond you know, gender, race, ethnicity. Because I do think having a broader set of viewpoints in the, the boardroom from that perspective as well will be beneficial. And that may occur naturally with sort of some of the 
the expectations from investors now, both in terms of gender and racial diversity, but also because of the focus a lot of them have now on overboarding and things like that, you know, trying to get away from having individuals that, that serve on four or five boards. So as you broaden the pool, you know, hopefully you'll get some more diversity in a, in a broad range of aspects. I guess I have kind of a um, sort of a stereotypical view of boards, but but are they prepared? Do you find when you when you speak to them? Obviously, not entirely, because there's your job. But I mean, how how prepared are are boards to to oversee all these new risks that that sort of millennials see that maybe they hadn't before? Again, I think it varies, but I mm. think for many companies, it's it's really just understanding that. The, the expectations have evolved and that oversight responsibilities, uh, the, you know, there's an expectation that you, for example, let's just, you know, focus on human capital, which is something that is very much uh, top of mind for a lot of investors right now. You, historically, you were looking at executive compensation. You know, maybe you should have a, a, a more, a broader view of what the pay practices are in your company and how the experience that your executive team has compares to your broader employee population and things like culture. A lot of companies have done surveys, I think for many years where they are polling employees and trying to understand um, how they feel about leadership, how they feel about their development, their opportunities for growth and all those things. I don't know historically to what extent companies shared that information and sort of the granular detail of that information with their boards. But, you know, that is something that boards may want to pay attention to because the those cultural problems can have a real impact on the stability of your workforce. So I think, you know, I, I don't, I guess my sense is that I don't think that there's necessarily, you know, it depends. You, you sometimes do encounter resistance or, you know, beliefs that that's not something that's really like germane to a board's responsibilities. You know, but I think more so it's a matter of connecting, helping uh, connect the dots and explain how this all does sort of matter in terms of the board's, you know, fiduciary duties on behalf of the company. And, and once those connections are made, I think, you know, directors understand that. And then it becomes a matter of thinking about whether the board is doing what it needs to, to oversee those responsibilities. And that could be a matter of the composition of your board, but it also could be a matter of just making sure you're bringing in the right advisors or maybe you need an advisory committee or a working group for something that's going to report up into the board. So, and I think, I think by and large, boards want to do the right thing. It's just, you know, the education, bringing them along in terms of why why investors are asking about going back to some of these ESG issues, and I think if you think about them in a in a silo, and I think that's why you know for many years, if you look at surveys of directors around some of these issues, you know they'll think there's too much emphasis placed on ESG from investors, and you know I 
I would be interested to see some of the some of the accounting firms. I, I know do these types of surveys on a somewhat regular basis. I'd be interested to see for you know whatever's done in 2020, how that viewpoint changes or doesn't change. Because I do think one result of the the pandemic is that the the impact of some of these risks that are you know not particularly concrete, they're long-term, they're somewhat uh, intangible but systemic. And, you know, the the pandemic, I think, has brought a lot of that to to life. And, like, you know, you have a very a clear, real, and present understanding of how systemic risk can impact your company's performance. And so, you know, maybe that will, will change some viewpoints. When you meet people, when you meet corporate secretaries, what's the one thing they don't get? What, what's the, what's the, is there a constant question or a, a constant complaint or a constant, you know, counsel that you find yourself saying to them over and over again? It, it... On your first point about how, how to convince boards, uh, their boards on the importance of ESG, I think there's, there's been quite a bit of focus in the past year around the money flowing into ESG strategies. Mm. And I think if there hasn't been something that was compelling previously, that is something that may be worth pointing out to your management and your boards is that this is an area that does seem to be growing relatively exponentially. And there's been uh, research uh, that has come out in the last several months noting that ESG funds performed better uh, than the market overall in the pandemic. So I think the the opportunity side of ESG is perhaps starting to be more clear uh, than than it has been in the past. So that's that's one thing I would note. I think the other area where I think you know companies often get caught up in this ESG landscape is I think there's some paralysis that takes hold for a lot of companies because there are so many different rating organizations out there. Mm. And I think it can feel overwhelming and you're not really sure where to start. And the, what's happened really in the past uh, 18 months or so is that investors I think have become uh, much more transparent in terms of their expectations that, you know, it's, this isn't so much about ESG ratings, it's about disclosure and understanding the company's risks and opportunities as they relate to ESG. And investors have, by and large, there's been some strong coalescence around the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures Framework right. and around the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board um, standards. And so, Really, to the extent companies are trying to figure out where to start, I would encourage them that's where you want to start. And thinking about the disclosure side of things and you know what the governance framework is for these topics, rather than trying to sort of uh, focus on particular ratings or ratings improvements, I think that's that's the second step. And those do come into the play I, to the extent you're starting to then think about attracting some of the ESG-focused investors that may be using those ratings for specific things. You know, I think there's some some strategy that can be done there to figure out what makes the most sense for you to focus on. But 
before you get to the rating standpoint, I do think thinking about the the disclosure expectations is a, a first step. And you know, SASB is a very manageable manageable set of topics for for companies that are industry specific um, and a good place to start and something that their investors are really focusing on. And here and now we're at the point in this, you know, I don't think was necessarily the case a few years ago, but we're at the point where you can now make some very clear connections between voting activity and and disclosure. And, you know, BlackRock and State Street and now Vanguard have, have given very clear public indication of their expectations and how uh, a company's management of those topics is going to impact its voting decisions. So I think that's another thing that you can you can take to your management and to your board to impress upon them the importance of handling this topic. You're listening to Governance Matters, a Corporate Secretary Magazine podcast. This episode is made possible by ComputerShare Georgeson. These days, everybody's getting all too well acquainted with the notion of risk. And with an ever-growing range of risk topics filling boardroom agendas, my next guest says the corporate secretary's key function is making it easier for boards to anticipate risks. Here's Hewlett-Packard Enterprises' Derek Windham. Whereas the role of corporate secretary in the past may have been kind of more primarily board-facing and board-focused, uh, today I think the role really sits um, at a crossroads, kind of an intersection of a lot of different functions within an organization. So obviously uh, the board of directors, but you know increasingly corporate secretary has a very important role in uh, investor relations. Um, and in uh, communications and in you know the SEC filings, uh, you know securities, um, and even kind of you know with respect to various business units throughout the company. And so I think because of that centralized role, it's really important for the corporate secretary to sort of act as a focusing mechanism ensuring there's kind of consistent goal, consistent strategy, consistent narrative um, that the board can exercise its oversight over. Um, and I think that's, you know, particularly important in the area of kind of ESG issues, as we can talk more about. But, you know, I think for the board to really exercise its oversight over ESG properly, um, you know, you have to kind of have a integral view that combines, you know, the, you know, stakeholder view, what are shareholders and other stakeholders uh, concerned about? What are the, you know, ESG risks and opportunities to the business? You know, what are the narratives that uh, you're saying in your communications and your SEC disclosures? And so, you know, I think increasingly uh, really good, effective corporate secretary role and support is to kind of manage the convergence of all of these different, you know, really critical information work streams throughout the organization. Yeah, I think the corporate secretary's key function in risk oversight is really trying to think 
and pinpoint how we can most effectively facilitate um, board oversight of risk. So, you know, obviously, effective risk oversight requires identifying the right risks, but you know, I think we really have to do that in a proactive manner. I think a lot of times organizations get stuck in sort of reactive risk management. Um, and, you know, you have risks that have been identified. They're, you know, perhaps traditional risks. There's a lot of mitigation strategies at the company. And so I think a lot of times there's a tendency to focus on what these known risks are mm-hmm. and what the, you know, mitigation efforts are. Um, but I think, you know, the corporate secretary needs to constantly ensure the dialogue in the boardroom is focused not just on mitigation efforts for currently identified risks, but ensuring there's an understanding at the board level of how risks might evolve. And, you know, importantly, what are our processes for anticipating these risks? Um, so, you know, so I think the board needs to continually assess whether our risk management strategy continues to be consistent with our risk culture and risk appetite and what mechanisms we have in place for anticipating new risks. And I mean, that's something we've seen over the past decade. There have been, uh, you know, tremendous changes in the types of risks we're seeing, you know, technological change and cyber risks, Me Too movement, governance failures. I mean, going back from Enron all the way up to, even Wells Fargo just a couple of years ago, hmm. um, and now ESG risks and, you know, the current very prominent risks of widespread, widespread crisis that we're seeing. And so, you know, I, I think, again, as corporate secretary, we need to ensure there's discussion and vision into how a company tries to anticipate risks. Wow. How, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, what kind of a person does it take to do that? You're, 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 you're a lawyer. I mean, do you, what do you read? You know, the village voice, uh, if you're looking for like, you know, social unrest. I mean, how do you, you say you're a funnel, but how, how literally do you, know, you do it that? It takes more than a person. <laughs> I I, I'm glib again, but pardon me? Yeah. So I think, I think again, it, it comes back to really making sure you are listening to all of your various stakeholders. Hmm. Listen to your shareholders, listen to your employees, your customers, your consumers, your communities. Really look at your business and think about strategy and risks to the strategy. Um, and again, this is not necessarily something the corporate secretary can do on his or her own or as a team. But, you know, again, the corporate secretary's role is to ensure that the teams and the departments and the functions that are thinking about risk are doing it, you know, with a view to these issues, huh. with a view to being proactive, with a view to looking at, you know, ESG, with a view to ensuring we continue to listen to our stakeholders. Um, and so, you know, you can no longer really operate in a sort of myopic, narrowly focused environment. Um, there's a recognition that, you know, as, as we've seen this year, a lot of externalities are affecting uh, companies in a very substantial way, and we have to be uh, we have to be attuned to it. You know, people like to talk about the focus of investors on ESG, and you know, focus of stakeholders and focus of companies on ESG. And is it okay to focus on those issues? And what about shareholder primacy? I think it's really maybe more accurate to talk about a shift in focus from 
short-term value to long-term value. You know, people are certainly welcome to debate that. HPE, our shareholders are focused on long-term value. And we know that because as we talked about earlier, you know, we have a very close and robust shareholder engagement program and we make sure we get their views and we have our shareholders talking to our directors um, on a routine basis. And even even our smaller shareholders, I mean, when we hear from, you know, retail investors, you know, their communications, you know, whether they're um, happy about something or concerned about something, more often than not, their communications are prefaced with, you know, I've been a HP shareholder for 30 years. Hmm. And so we're seeing, you know, long-term focus of, of smaller shareholders too. Um and so definitely at HPE, our shareholders are interested in long-term value. And so once you have a focus on long I think that's coupled with there's now the realization that, you know, ESG issues are integrally tied to value. And, you know, the, there are these externalities um, that affect the company. I mean, it's understandable this year. Look at how um, companies have been crippled. Um, because of the pandemic and issues with their supply chain, issues with their customers and partners. And so, you know, you can argue short-term value versus long-term value. don't really know how you can credibly argue that ESG issues are not um, tied in a very concrete and lasting way to, you know, sustainable performance. And that's your Governance Matters podcast for this month. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Hannah Orowitz and Derek Windham. Join us again next month when we explore the exciting world of entity management. Get them handled. That's what I say. Entities are everything. Plus, we'll also take a look at how savvy COSECs can manage the chaos. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.